We all know that a good story never dies. But sometimes the spirits in those stories can live on as well. In a churchyard on a hill facing the sea, a large burial vault was built in 1800. On July 31st, 1807, the first interment took place. A Mrs. Goddard was buried in a heavy lead coffin. On February 22nd, 1808, just a few months later, the same vault was opened to admit the remains of a Miss A.M. Chase. To the amazement of all, the earlier coffin was found disturbed. Attributing the disturbance to carelessness, the grave tenders tidied up the vault, set things straight, and locked the heavy door securely after themselves. On July 6th, 1812, the crypt was again opened to admit the heavy coffin of Dorcas Chase. This time, both previous coffins were in disarray. Once more, the vault's grisly contents were restored to their proper places and with the new coffins secured in position. Then, on August 9th, 1812, upon the burial of the honorary Thomas Chase, the same disorder again met the visitors. Finally, on July 7th, 1819, pallbearers who were seeking to deposit the last remains of Thomas Clark again found that all of the contents inside the vault had been violated. This time, they took action. First, they securely anchored all of the coffins. Next, they spread a fine white sand on the vault floor. Even an insect would leave a track. Lastly, they had stonemasons cement the heavy door shut, after which they placed several seals around the stone entrance with great art and cunning. One year later, as had been prearranged on April 18, 1820, the governor of the island, accompanied by a large group of curious, responsible people, opened the vault. The seals were still intact, untouched, and undisturbed. The door was so tight that two masons needed heavy tools to open it. Inside, no prints marred the smooth white sand on the floor. Everything was as they had left it, except all of the coffins. The coffins were in chaos, as though flung with Herculean strength by an unseen hand. And in case you're wondering, no, there hadn't been any earthquakes. In no way could tidal water reach it so high up on this hill. No natural action known to modern science could explain it. This is the story of the mysterious moving coffins.
Hey, all you ghosts and ghouls, welcome back to your favorite podcast, That Would Be Rad, a podcast that majors in 80s and 90s nostalgia, comic culture, all things paranormal, and minors in retro video games, tabletop RPGs, pre-internet mysteries, anything and everything spooky, and raising our kids to be half as cool as we were back in the 80s. I'm your ghostly host, Tyler Bentz, and this is your other spooky host, Woody Brown. Is that good? Yeah, I mean, I think that's good. That work. Okay, man, it's here. It October is finally spectacular three. Yes. I mean, I gotta say, man, the cooler weather has already prompted me to really dig into mm-hmm. the scary movies and start rewatching the VHS collection, man. I mean, yes, sir. It's it's just tis the season as this. Yeah, dude. I uh actually and I mean we're probably not gonna feature this in the uh for the Halloween season, but uh, I did just start that new Stephen King It documentary on Amazon Prime, and mm-hmm. it's pretty cool. I mean, I'm not all the way through, so I totally could be misspeaking here. But, yeah, I, I mean, it's pretty cool. I would say it's worth a watch. I guess for me, I wanted to know a little more about sort of the like the backstory of like the Pennywise sort of motif and like where where he sort of got that information from and, and that whole kind of deal. Uh, I mean, they... They loosely go into it. They sort of talk about like uh, like Gacy mm. and sort of the, you know, sort of like serial killer type clown thing. But they don't mm. really go into like that early like, you know, stuff that obviously we would be the first thing that, that we would go into. As yeah, like far the as folklore like, then. Yeah, the folklore and like like the Pied Piper thing and like Jester and Harlequin and like mm-hmm. that whole early, early sort of clown thing. They haven't done it yet, but it is cool. It's it's cool to see like like the older cast. Well, and it it also covers only the first or the original it yeah. uh, min, miniseries mm-hmm. instead of like the new one. Um, but it's cool because it shows like the you know their younger selves and like they talk about how like you know their interactions and like trying to figure out how to like play play off of each other with like the young and old characters. It's uh it's it's pretty cool though. I yeah. like it. It is cool, man. Yeah, it's funny you say that. I recently rewatched yeah that original miniseries on VHS, man, and like the VHS tape itself is like just a crummy copy, and so it's just like mm-hmm. constantly like speeding up and slowing down. You know that weird like <laughs> oh yeah, you know that mm-hmm. everybody listening on you know exactly what we're talking about here. But for some reason, that kind of just made it creepier, mm. which is pretty cool. But yeah, that is cool. It's such a good st- story, man, and and oof, it's intense though. Yeah, uh, w- one thing that I that I r- actually really did enjoy that's on the documentary is like they talk about how sort of like the special effects, like I guess they they started out and it was going to be like really over the top, you know, sort of practical, sort of more gorier looking like clown with a bunch of like prosthetic stuff and makeup. And then like as they continued on, it was like it got at the point where like Tim Curry was like okay with it and then like as it went on he was like look, like just like I, I will supply what you you want out of this. Like, just please, just make it as like straight as possible. Just paint my face, and then I'll do the rest. And like they were like, he was exactly right. And so they, I guess they pulled back like a ton of like some of the like prospect or prosthetics and like you know heavy, heavy, heavy like makeup, special effects stuff. Man, and he did. Man, he kills it. Yeah, dude. I mean, he's amazing. Yeah. It's so funny that someone like Tim Curry 
can be like one of the scariest characters of all time and then also be yeah. like, have a lovely day in, <laughs> yeah. in uh, your very own cheese pizza in um, Home Alone 2, for example. Oh, or yeah. like, he's so hilarious in, in the movie Oscar for all of you Sylvester Stallone fans. Uh, or Marissa Tomei is in that movie as well. Mm. That's man, Tim Curry is just himself, yeah, like amplified in that movie. And it's just hilarious. He's also hilarious in Congo. I don't Stop him eating in Congo. my sesame cake. Um, <laughs> anyway, I digress. Look, welcome to the spooky season. We yeah. wanted to kick off this year with a story that was actually suggested and or requested by one of you, a listener, a listener named Jesse Dotson. So first off, Jesse. Thank you so much for sending this because I had never heard of this before. Me neither. And it is the perfect way to kick off the spooky season, especially coming off of us kind of briefly mentioning poltergeist activity. And I mean, we even at at one point when we were kind of planning our October Spectacular talked about going into the movie Poltergeist. I Mm -hmm. also recently watched that. How does that hold up, by the way? Um... I mean, I know that's. A, I know you hate that question. Yeah, I mean, is it still pretty scary though? Yeah, I mean, if I was like a kid watching it, I'd probably be scared. I mean, there's moments that are kind of freaky, but mm-hmm. then there's like you know, like a cartoon specter comes out of the television at first and into the wall. So this the special effects are not the greatest, but still kind of freaky. Anyhow, I listen. I want to. I want to stay on task here, man. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm just. Um, I'm so excited. I just want to like, just like bask in the glory of, mm-hmm. of of Halloween. The Halloween season, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm loving every, every bit of it. Also, thank you so much, Jesse, because for someone to bust out a topic that neither of us have ever heard of, I mean, that's like an MVP award. Mm, yeah, no kidding. I mean, whew, man. And this one, there have been several sort of documented cases of this. And as we kind of dug in, the one that we kind of mentioned at the top of the show in the intro um, is sort of the story of the Chase family vault. And we'll go into a little bit more detail there, but the gist is this. All right, you've got, in, in different parts of the world, you've got this phenomenon that's going on with these not wooden coffins. You know, Initially, whenever I heard or kind of read this story... Uh, in a book I actually already had. That's the thing. I like. I, it seemed kind of familiar whenever I heard Chase Vault, and I'm like, what is that? You mm-hmm. know? And kind of going back and, and reading about it, you think at first, well, you know, it's an easy solution. Somebody is sneaking in here, and they're moving around these wooden coffins. Who, ca- You know, that's sneaky and, and scary, but come on. Mm-hmm. Well, no, no, no. These coffins are made of lead, okay? Heavy Heavy, heavy coffins. Yeah. Not to mention the fact that they are behind a very heavy sort of door, steel door in some cases, that wouldn't be easy to break into, especially unnoticed. Yes. Uh, And just to sort of clarify the, which is pretty tragic. So if this kind of stuff bothers you, we apologize ahead of time. But, uh, you know, the two children were were put into these things and the smallest lead casket you know which was like pretty tiny was like 250 pounds mm-hmm. and that's and that's for like a, the you know the child. smallest child yeah. yeah and so just imagine what an adult one would weigh mm-hmm. i mean at least twice that right oh yeah so i don't know how many of you folks have kind of you know tried to move heavy furniture couch so that your wife can 
put a new rug under it or whatever. It And it's not 500 pounds. <laughs> right. But it certainly feels like it. It sure does. I mean, ugh, don't even get me started. By the way, moving is the worst. Okay, Moving is the worst. I don't know that this happens all too often here. It may have at some point, but, you know, currently in the United States, it's not a typical burial custom to have sort of like a giant uh, vault where an entire family would be sort of kept, Mm -hmm. you know, quote unquote, either above ground or at least safe from sort of dirt and all that. Here, you know... A, a typical burial is just like, a, you know, the, the coffin goes into the ground, it's covered up, that's it, right? Mm-hmm. I'm sure that, like, wealthier families may still have sort of like a uh, either a mausoleum or some sort of um, vault or crypt created. I, I don't know for a fact that that still goes on, but back in the day, around this time, which was around 18... Oh, yeah, early 1800s was when this vault was was built, but it's not the interesting thing, and um, going back to the gist here, they're heavy, lead, they're sealed inside a crypt. Whenever the mm-hmm. crypt is opened to essentially bring in the remains of another family member at different points, it's discovered that whatever coffins were in there have been, like, knocked over. Either sometimes they're upside down, mm-hmm. they're sort of laying on top of each other, they're just moved all around this this uh, this crypt, okay? Yeah. Initially, people just kind of think, well, maybe the people that worked here a couple of years ago were just lazy and they just kind of put things in here, right? Because mm-hmm. that's the thing about these crypts is, and not to go back to Dungeons and Dragons, but <laughs> here we go. You know, a lot of times those things are very neatly arranged. You know, you've got your coffin oh, sort yeah. of arranged up against the wall or something like that. Maybe there's something for when and if family members are to kind of visit this physical location. Uh, of their ancestors, they're not just like strewn about as if like, you know, boxes of of garbage or something. You know, everything is precise and neat. Mm -hmm. And so this was kind of shocking to folks initially. Again, they just thought, well, somebody just didn't do a good job, you know, whatever. And then it just kept on happening. And then despite sealing the outside uh, door and, and like basically bricking it over, it's still occurred yeah now what i found super interesting about this as we dig in is this is not the only place that this has been known to happen so the chase family vault was located in barbados Mm -hmm. i found this well this story was printed in this old english magazine called folklore which is the publication for this uh what's it called The Folklore Society. Yeah, publication for this society called the Folklore Society, which uh, was founded in 1878. Mm. And this story was printed in an edition, um, volume 18, 1907. Wow. There's this story in here uh, entitled Death's Deeds, a bilocated story. And I just thought it's just super fascinating, and I kind of want to read the details here. So this is written by A. Lang, which is interesting, and I and I wasn't able to determine this. And Tyler, maybe you can sort of in the background. But A. Lang was a famous like Scottish author, and that I believe wrote. Um, hold on, just don't know if it's the same one. I don't know if this stands for Andrew Lang, hmm. but if so, you know he wrote a bunch of like uh, books about fairies and folklore and stuff. 
he was from Scotland and oh, cool. yeah, contributed a lot into the field of anthropology. And I mean, he wrote The Arabian Nights. Oh, wow. King Arthur, Tales from the Round Table, hmm. or Andrew Lang and H.J. Ford. So here's the thing. I don't know if it's the same guy. Mm-hmm. It very well could be. The timing kind of matches up. If so, then that means he was a member of this, uh, the Folklore Society, which again was founded in England. And they would put out, and they still do, by the way, they put out these publications, you know, I think quarterly, where they would have notes and minutes from their organized meetings, but mm-hmm. then also contributions of stories and things that people had found. And this is this is just one of them. So cool. Yeah. And in parentheses, it says, read at meeting, 19th of June, 1907. Oh, I love that stuff. So it says, <clears throat> Did, didn't you say something when we talked earlier? It's something, or you maybe the the picture you sent. It's like, uh, like transactions from the folklore society. So it's like, yeah, in like the first page, yeah, yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, man, it has everything from like, you know, the members' names and everything. I mean, it's like a five hundred and ten page book that was bound and everything. Wow. Yeah. Right, currently, I think its um, location is in the. Uh, I want to say it is in Canada. So, yeah, the University of Toronto. Hmm. The this, this specific copy. Oh, and oh, this was like ep, like uh, issue eighteen or something, right? Yeah, that, volume eighteen, nineteen. Or volume eighteen, right? Yeah. All right. Uh, also, by the way, before we continue, I would be remiss if I didn't add that uh, just to bring up D and D again. There's actually a spell called biolocation. Hmm. Yep, where you basically make a mirror image of yourself. Well, and that's so cool because I never really thought of bilocated story mm-hmm. you know i'm like what what, what is that mm-hmm. so it starts like this it says finally the inventions of prehistoric antiquity which are the most stock and trade of household tales and early epics are localized in various places the incidents of a european ballad are said to have occurred for example at the meeting place of etrick and yarrow or beside the t- troutful douglas burn hey guys that's a lot of england stuff i don't know oh yeah <laughs> Basically, what he's saying in this beginning is that, like, uh, there's this tendency to revive and renovate old stories by giving them a contemporary date and a familiar locality, and that sort of makes it seem more real. Yeah, I agree. But, he says, it's sort of like the... Wait, hold on. It's sort of like the concept of an urban legend. Right, right. You know, you grew up in different parts of the world, but everybody kind of heard that same urban legend. Mm-hmm. Because... Yeah aspects of the story are kind of um it's like you like it's matched so that it fits whatever your locale is and it's like a giant international game of telephone yeah exactly <laughs> yeah he says but i found a puzzling case of story by location and i would be glad to know how we are how we are to explain it did the self-same strange thing happen twice or more frequently on either side of the atlantic within some 20 years, or is the European narrative a deliberate plagiarism from West Indian facts? Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm. Though the dead are the sufferers in this affair, and also the actors, according to popular opinion, the sturdy rationalist need not be nervous. I am not telling a ghost story, a thing excommunicated, if there be evidence for it, by scientific folklorists. I must confess that a little historical research has been needed and historical precision is sadly alien to anthropological methods. Um, I don't really know what all that means. I'm probably not going (laughs) to... 
Shiloh, no, man, that's cool. Help him there. Or, I mean, I, uh, I mean <laughs> so he goes on to talk about this first instance. Okay. So on May 8th, 1859, in Paris, Mademoiselle de Guldenstube and her brother, the Baron de Guldenstube, told this version of the story. This was published in 1860 in the American edition of a book by uh, Mr. Robert Dell Owen, who was a minister. But anyway, his book was entitled Footfalls on the Boundary of Another World. Man, what a great title. I mean, title. what a title. Yeah. I, yeah, this is interesting. I got to add this real quick. So the younger Baron, the narrator of this kind of tale, declared that he saw a very strange phantasm of the dead in Paris in his room in March of 1854. The events of 1854 were therefore within his own recollection in a book that he published in 1857 on automatic writing, mm. which he attributed to the agency of spirits. Clay's ears just perked up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, here's the story. The story is that in June 1844, a chapel of the Buxhowden family in the cemetery of Arensburg became noisy. The noise was so loud that frightened the horses outside into fits and that the chapel was opened for the burial of a corpse. The coffins were found displaced and lying in a confused pile. They were replaced and then the chapel was then locked. Elder Guldenstube, the father of the narrator, with two of the Buxhowden family, the people that owned the chapel, mm -hmm. secretly went back and visited the chapel. Again, finding the coffins all in a heap. What is going on? So they had them put in order, again locked the chapel, and consented to an investigation. A committee of the consistory, <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, they formed this like committee, including the baron, the bishop of the church, a burgomaster and an aesthetic doctor, a syndic and a secretary with two clergymen. That was what their committee was, and they're going to investigate. So they reopened the chapel. All of the coffins but three were in a, quote, painfully dissolute state. There was no robbery of jewels that had been buried with these coffins. None of the pavement around them had been disturbed. See, that, that, that was going to be my first question of like, like, oh, it's got to be, it's got to be grave robbers. But then my, that was my next question was like, was anything missing? Nothing. So nothing missing, man, nothing broken. Like they didn't come up through the floor, nothing like that. So in other words, they're saying like, look, the floor is perfectly intact. Nobody dug a tunnel because they couldn't get in through the door. Now here's where it starts to get not only similar to the Chase family vault situation, but also strange and weird. After these messages, we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. 
Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. America's future can be determined by our dreams and our visions. It was very intense For over 200 years, there have been reports of giant man-like creatures. From another dimension, another world, I don't know. The most intriguing mystery on the North American continent. Hey, this is Bryce Johnson from the Bigfoot Collectors Club, and you're listening to Tyler and Woody on That Would Be Rad, because that is rad. Instead of sand, uh, like the Chase family vault, they used, so they put everything back in order. They locked the doors and even put a seal, but the official seal of consistory or whatever. They, they used wood ashes and kind of placed them everywhere to detect any footsteps. A military guard was posted for three days and three nights outside of this church. A consistory the then, is a court presided over by a bishop. Cool. The, so a consistory, okay? Yeah. Uh, the committee then returned after the, you know, the guard post and found all in order. Seals, undisturbed. Ashes, untrodden. Mm. But the coffins were standing on their heads. What? The lid of one was open and a hand, that of a suicide, protruded. Man, that's... that's. Uh, I mean, that's insane, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it's like all the questions that I, I have, you just sort of, you're answering. It's like, you know, I, so you're saying they're like standing up or they're just completely flipped over? Like flipped like standing up on their heads. Only one of the coffins, the lid was open and, and a hand was kind of poking out. And that was the hand of someone who had committed suicide previously mm. and was and was in that coffin. I mean, um, do you do you think that well, keep going. We'll 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 get into theories afterwards. Okay. So basically they say that, you know, you can actually in, according to this, again, I want to remind everybody a couple quick things. This is not some website that I'm reading off of. This is not something that is new or um, creepypasta that you can find all kinds of crazy stories on the internet. Mm-hmm. This is from the pages that I'm looking at with my eyes of a book that was published in 1907. Okay. I just want to make yeah. sure we're on the same page. Mm-hmm. Hey, <laughs> All right. So it even says in this, it says, an official report was drawn up, which is to be found among the archives of the consistory and may be examined by any travelers respectably recommended on application to the secretary of the consistory. Here's, here's, this is nuts, dude. The troubles continued until, finally, the dead were taken out, taken out and then buried in earth. Del Owen, in 1860, adds to this that the next generation will perhaps, he says, the next generation will perhaps regard this tale 
as an idol legend of the incredible. Yeah, I mean, here we are talking about it. No kidding. I mean, this part of the story goes on to say in 1899, Dr. Alfred Russell Wallace, so many first names, Mm -hmm. had a controversy with Mr. Frank Podmore about poltergeister or unexplained disturbances and gave the story as a sample. The Mr. Podmore naturally answered that the evidence is at third hand and that no one professed to have seen the official document or report of this. There's always a debunker. Yeah, no, hold on. Uh, Let's see. In the archives of the consistory and those of the church in Ironsburg, they couldn't find any documents about the disturbances of the coffins. Hmm. So it says in this report, are we to conclude that Mr. Dell Owens Baron de Guldenstub invented or rather plagiarized the whole story? So rich as it is in detail? Mm. It says, I could not take it on me to say that. For the document, if it existed, was one which persons of education and common sense might think it desirable to destroy, while the Bucks Howden family, on reflection, might regard it as an unpleasant record. I mean, think about it, they own this sort of side of the business. Yeah, yeah. So it says, uh, I I know how often a gap occurs in state papers and other public records just at the moment when we are aware that a royal murder plot or any other shady transaction was being arranged. So, you know, coming back out of this report here, how interesting is it that in early 1900s England, even back then they're talking about, wow, I mean, he basically says, look, I know how easy it is for just government papers official documents to kind of disappear when all of a sudden there's been some sort of royal murder plot or shady transaction involved somehow like oh, i don't know we don't have the i don't know where those documents are i took them to my <laughs> so okay. weird he says i now turn to the other and earlier version of the story the scene is a family vault that of the family of chase at the church named christ church in barbados it is not generally known that in barbados there is a mysterious vault in which no one now dares to deposit the dead. It is in a churchyard near the seaside. Man. Here's some more details about the Chase family vault. You know, direct quotes. It says, Each time that the vault was opened, the coffins were replaced in their proper situations, that is, three on the ground side by side, and the others laid on top of them. The vault was then regularly closed. The door and a massive stone which required six or seven men to move was then cemented by masons. And though the floor was of sand, there were no marks or footsteps or water. Because looking into this, one of the things that people, and we'll get get into the theories that people have and what Mm -hmm. we think about that, okay? The very last time the vault was opened, essentially because these things started happening over the course of almost 20 years in this specific location in Barbados at the uh, Christ Church there, mm-hmm. the, the, village, the townspeople kind of knew about it, right? And so by the time in 1820 when the governor of the island was like, okay, let's open it one last time, right? It was April 18th, 1820. There was like a, a group of, I think, several thousand that kind of gathered to see What's going on here? When the vault was opened by Lord Combermere, cool name, governor of the island, coffins were found in wild disarray. Um, We've actually got sketches of what they look like in in terms of how they were arranged. 
like kind of a before and after that are in this book. We'll put this up on Instagram. It's amazing. One thing, you know, in the previous story, they talked about how like the documents weren't able to be found and stuff. Well, unlike that, here in Barbados, um, there are, uh, you know, they just have the record of those bodies being in there and that they were led to coffins. And on September 15th, 1816, uh, on the report it says, and when the vault was opened and the leaden coffins were removed from their places, or the leaden coffins were removed from their places and were in much disorder. So we actually have, they actually have documents that, that show that that is reported. So, so you're, you're saying that like In goes contrast against, to the first story, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I mean, I mean, my thing is like, okay, well, maybe the first story was fake, but I still think that even if there's no sort of like official records of that, like the similarities of the two is, is sort of telling, I think, mm-hmm. you know? Yep. Now, I think I sent, I sent you the picture of the coffins, right? Uh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's wild, right? Yeah, dude, you that's see how, what they mean by like the, uh, basically like the smaller coffins would be on top of the mm-hmm. larger ones. Several, several thousand pounds worth of lead. This doesn't really sound safe, but. I mean, do you think it's like, I don't know, man. I, like, I, I don't really have a good answer for yeah. this. These two tales are precisely similar in almost every respect, including the trouble of the presence of a corpse from suicide. So that's something that's interesting, okay? All of the inhabitants of that vault were, you know, death of natural causes, except for mm-hmm. one, which was the first person to be placed in there. And that is a Ms. Goddard, and she died by suicide. And that was the lady, I can't remember, but her situation, was she was like already in there, right? Mm-hmm. And she then, was the first one to be put in there. They came back to put the second person and found her coffin all weird. And then well, ever since then, every single time they put someone in there, didn't matter how many coffins there were, they mm-hmm. were always displaced and moved around and everything. Well, what I'm saying is I think... I, I I don't know that she was was she part of the family or was she already there? Because I think I, th- I I think she may have been the daughter of the uh, patriarch. Because I thought that the the small daughter, like the little child, yeah, no, this was like an adult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm saying the the little child was like second, and then like the even younger child mm-hmm. uh, was third. Mm-hmm. Which there's some weird weird details with the dad too. Yeah. Um, check out this guy's account. Okay, this guy is, this is from this person's memoirs. He was a field marshal, field marshal Cumbermere or something, okay? Mm-hmm. Says, the scorching rays of the sun blazed forth in tropical splendor upon that sea of living forms. Thanks. European and the islanders all crowded together in their varied, in their varied attires. These massive stone tombs rising here and there above them. And the old church standing forth in the somber relief as if a connecting link between the living and the dead made the scene altogether one which defies description. One thing that that's, yeah, so here it is. So it's like in 1808, the Chase family purchased the vault for the burial of their child, an infant by the name of Marianne Maria. The tomb had been built in 1724 and already held the body of a Miss Thomasina Goddard, who was buried in 1807, a year before. Mm. Colonel Thomas Chase, patriarch of the family, decided against disturbing the deceased by moving her coffin out of his new family vault, which is kind of, 
I mean, kind of cool, but also sort of bizarre. Like, well, yeah. I mean, what would you do though? You know, and like, so you're like, well, like it would yeah. probably cost too much to build one. So he's like, well, I'm gonna. Can I use? Can I buy the rest of it? Sure. Yeah. Well, you go ahead. I was gonna say there. There. I, th- I think it is worth noting some of the weirder aspects of Colonel Thomas Chase. Yeah. I mean, do you want to get into that now? Or? Yeah, I mean, unless you you had... I mean, I wanted to talk about a couple of other ones, but... Um, okay, no, 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 that's fine. That's fine. Let's do that. So there is a church, uh, city cemetery on the outskirts of Dublin in Ireland that has for a long time, hundreds of years at this point, had a bad reputation among locals. Those who have... Um, hold on, let's see. Oh, folks that end up like basically coming upon money actually have paid and hired special people even back then to take the bodies of their deceased loved ones away from this place because of its supposed curses. In the city graveyard, people believe there will be no rest even after death. The cemetery caretaker at the time said that there's really something wrong with the place, that they're not even actually allowed to talk about it. He said that he didn't believe all the stuff that and rumors that he'd heard before. But after working there for 10 years, all kinds of crazy things have come to mind. He says that several years ago, one of the local residents complained that he could not find his wife's grave at the usual spot. It seemed to have evaporated and disappeared altogether. The giant stone slab had disappeared from where it had rested for a dozen years. The same day, the caretaker discovered it a few feet from the fence. He says that it couldn't be lifted. There would need to be a crane. But he was on duty that night. There was no machinery. There was nothing at all. No one. How could this have happened? Forensic experts determined that not only the stone slab was behind the fence, but the entire grave. It doesn't look like the work of common sort of cemetery thieves. Yeah. And I think the church that they're talking about, man, is, it's even crazy. It's St. Mission's Church. Mission mm-hmm. spelled like, almost like Misha again, but without the again and whatever. It's an Irish church where also, man, in, in including all this crazy stuff, there's supposedly an 800-year-old mummy that Whoa. is reaching out of its coffin as if to shake hands. And on top of it all, I think you're allowed to kind of go down there and visit it. Wow, that's cool. The church itself was built in 1095 to serve Vikings who were coming into Ireland and, I guess, to teach them about Christianity. Mm -hmm. The church was rebuilt in 1686 after it was kind of destroyed by, like, some battles and wars and stuff. And the crypt, after all these changes and everything like that, the crypt itself has actually stayed the same. There are a number of theories as to why the corpses in the basement have preserved over time. One is that the basement contains limestone, making the basement particularly dry and therefore good for mummification. Another Mm -hmm. is that the church was built on some former swampland and that the methane gas is acting as some sort of preservative on the bodies. Other theories involve the presence of oak wood in the soil or the building materials used in the church. Regardless of all this, man, whatever is preserving these mummies... Is mm-hmm. also kind of disintegrating their coffins, which is weird. Yeah, but the weird thing, the the one thing that I find weird with that though is like I understand that there's stuff in the soil, 
uh, that can have that like sort of preserving effect. But apparently like this whole vault was like super, super, super sturdy, thick uh, marble. Mm. Like in that sealed. One. You mean in the uh, the other one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is yeah. kind of like going a little off to the side here where there's just like, it's kind of cool that you can see these 800-year-old mummies. Oh, um, oh, oh, okay. I yeah, thought yeah. you were talking about No, no, no. So this is just kind of a neat sort of Halloween sort of tie-in here that whatever's causing these things to become like mummified mm-hmm. is also causing the wooden coffins that they're in. Again, this is different than the coffins moving and stuff. It's just about this church and the mummies there the wood coffins sort of break apart and what's left is these like preserved mummified really well mummified uh, bodies that come tumbling out over time and while there are caskets strewn about and in small nooks in the wall some coffins are falling apart enough to reveal like an arm or a leg and the most visible mummies are what they call the big four four mummified corpses which have no lids on their coffins at all and are displayed together. On the right is a woman simply called the unknown. The middle one, the thief. He's missing parts of both feet and hand. There's a theory that basically the thief was buried after being converted. You know, it's like, well, why would you bury a thief in the church? I mean, that's kind of reserved for more important people or something, but it's believed that the thief later converted and became a priest or maybe even a respected man which is why uh, he's buried there. And then next to him is one that they call, like it's like a smaller woman that everyone calls the nun. But the true star, it says, that separates the others apart is this 800-year-old mummy called the Crusader. It's like an old soldier who may have died in the Crusades itself or shortly thereafter. The Crusader was quite tall for the time, six and a half feet tall, which would have been almost like a giant back then. His legs having been broken and folded up under him to even fit in the coffin. His hand stretches out of the casket slightly, and visitors were once encouraged to give it a shake. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Man, the good old days, huh? Mm-hmm. Now, legend has it that the crypt is said to have been visited by young Bram Stoker. Mm. Mm. All like right, that. enough That's about cool. the mummies real quick. Again, in the local cemetery there... I'm not sure if it's actually associated with this church necessarily, but the graves move from place to place. I mean, people in the town still kind of talk about this. There's no suspects. The angry relatives, you know, have turned to private experts. They have no, there's no evidence. There's nobody. No one has ever been caught. I mean, residents of Dublin took the event so seriously that when first described of this wandering graves, oh, wow, this is intense, man. So it says, Residents of Dublin took the event seriously because it was here in the Irish capital once was first described the phenomenon of wandering graves. In one of the darkest and most mysterious places of modern Dublin, the Church of St. Michael, the natives avoid going in altogether, and curious tourists before descending into these stone catacombs are required to undergo an interview with a psychologist. Hmm. A few years ago, Dublin City Hall almost banned all tours of the church cellars because of the cases of panic and stuff. Moving over to Scotland, in the autumn of 1928, tons of newspapers started reporting a strange occurrence within the grave of uh, Sir Roger Haslam, who was buried in the cemetery of the Scottish town of Glennysville back in the mid-19th century. 
his great nephew was passing through town and decided to visit his, you know, great uncle. He had visited the uncle's grave many years before and knew it pretty well. He remembered that a neighboring tombstone with an angel carved on it was kind of near there, and he kind of used that as his sort of uh, reference marker. Yeah, so he could, you know, find the grave again. The nephew quickly found the same place by the fence and discovered the familiar tombstone with an angel. But where was the tomb? Hmm. Instead of a grave, all he saw was a flat patch of ground overgrown with grass. The cemetery keeper helped him find the grave, and the grave was 200 meters away from where it should have been. And even as the cemetery plan showed, there was no doubt the same low mound of earth, the same granite monument in the form of the Maltese cross. Sir Arthur, the guy, the thought that someone had moved the gravestone and then the coffin remained where it was. He had the old grave dug up, but there was nothing there. Then dug out the grave under the new location and found it at a depth of one and a half meters, the uh, remains of a rotten oak coffin and a skeleton in decayed rags. The family ring was still on there. The bones of the deceased were firmly embedded in the clay and a large fragment of soil would have to be dug up to take the deceased elsewhere. Isn't that weird? Yeah, that's really weird. I mean... Hmm. I mean, I just had this... I, I just had a crazy thought. Uh, okay. And I mean, I don't know... I, 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 I don't necessarily believe this, but I think it's interesting. If we're looking at this, and just bear with me, it's pretty mm-hmm. far out, but if we're looking at this as, okay, say we all sort of accept that there's like simulation theory in some regard, like whether it, you know, I'm not necessarily saying that everything is exactly like the matrix or it's a big computer in the sense that we think of a computer or a game or or whatever, but it's almost like there is this element of this that like, you know, I've heard of people talk about like the simulation theory and they talk about how they've had these moments where like they look around and it's almost like, it's almost like the rendering hasn't been completed. Mm. And it's like, they'll see an area where like, you know, say they're looking into like a forest or whatever. And it's like, it's like in blocks, <laughs> like it's not, it hasn't like caught up yet. So it's almost yeah. like, what if this, you know, again, say we accept the simulation theory. What if this is like some sort of thing where, you know, the, the running CPU power is obviously going to be, uh, it's obviously going to be used for like, you know, someone wa- walking down a street or people that live in a city or all this stuff. But it's like once, you know, once these these bodies and caskets are buried, I mean, I don't know, maybe they're, it's like the the simulation sort of gives up on that. And then suddenly, like when these people decide to like, go back in and like dig back up it's like and the game doesn't quite <laughs> it doesn't quite like render like it's yeah, supposed it's to like the equivalent of like you're in some game and you see some guy just like walking at the wall into the wall yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. well that is an interesting theory but hold, hold on to those because here's one that happened in 1989 an elderly farmer joe bernie of foley creek foley creek now, why do I know Foley Creek, dude? I don't know. That sounds... Is that a well, big It's thing? in western Kansas. He found a grave mound with a cracked stone tombstone in the middle of his yard in the early morning hours. 
He immediately called the police, mm. and an examination of the grave revealed that the inscription of the headstone had been completely erased. In a hole under the slab rested a decaying coffin with human remains embedded in the ground. It was impossible to find out who they belonged to, so they carefully pulled the coffin out with the bones and, you know, took it somewhere else to give it a proper burial. But how did the grave end up in the yard of a farm, surrounded by a concrete fence and with the gates locked? Hmm. If we kind of assume that the transfer of these graves is the work of, like, jokers or intruders or people just playing a uh, prank, Mm -hmm. like, how does someone kind of do that? Yeah, and also, I mean, again, going back to, like, the you know, certain things, like, not being disturbed. I mean, if you have someone who is so... You know, I mean, they're willing to be like grave robbers, you know, mm-hmm. they've got to be kind of, boy, they're not really, uh, they're not who you want to knock on your door and come, right. like introduce themselves and say, you know, ask you for your daughter's, you know, hand in marriage. Right. Or, or like ask them to be a babysitter or something. Yeah. Those are not it's a certain people. caliber of individual. Caliber. There you that, go. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, here, well, but, but real quick, the, I, I feel like, for that to happen, and I mean, in a lot of grave robber sort of cases that, that we've seen, you know, I mean, even even down to like the, the vault being made of, you know, fine marble, uh, which would have possibly been like Italian marble of the time, you know, this very wealthy family. And so, you know, I mean, you have grave robbers, they're going to take every possible thing they, they can, you know. Yeah, you're putting uh, in that amount of effort to go into something that's pretty yeah. freaky, and and no matter who you are, steal from the dead is just not a you know. Yeah, you're gonna feel no. bad about that for a long time. I feel like you know maybe mm-hmm. not, but I mean, yikes, that's uh, that's intense. So I mean, I think when we l- let's take a quick break. When we get back, I want to start diving into some of the different possible things that could be happening happening here. I love it, dude. We will return after these messages. Hey, this is Woody. And this is Tyler. And you're listening to That Would Be Rad. And now, back to our show. Well, first let me ask you, because I think you wanted to talk about it earlier. Like, besides the theory that you kind of just mentioned about, like, it just being bad rendering from the, <laughs> from the, from the motherboard. It's just low CPU power. Yeah. Anything else just off the top of your head that just like comes to mind or do you want me to kind of start talking about what? Uh, well, l- let me just put one thing in that I think I think is really interesting about this case, specifically for the Chase Vault. One of my favorite characters throughout history, and it's so funny, it's like, it's like the J. Allen Hynek of his time, is Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. He mm. uh, is the creator of Sherlock Holmes and he was sort of a celebrity in, you know, early Victorian society. One thing that's cool, and 
about him is he actually commented on the case speculating that it actually may be the result of animal magnetism. And I'd heard of that, hmm. but I did a little more digging. And in that, to my uh, you know pleasant su- surprise, uh, it's something that's actually along the lines, uh, yet again, it's like that rabbit trail just keeps on, synchronicities just keep going. But it's this idea that, uh, well, let me just read it. Animal magnetism, also known as mesmerism, was the name given by German doctor Franz Mesmer in the 18th century to what he believed to be an invisible natural force possessed by all living things, including humans, animals, and vegetables. He believed that the force could have physical effects, including healing, and he tried persistently, but without success, to achieve scientific recognition of his ideas. The vitalist theory attracted numerous followers in Europe and the United States and was popular to the 19th century. Practitioners were often known as magnetizers rather than mesmerists. It was an important specialty in medicine for about 75 years from its beginnings in 1779 and continued to have some influence for another 50 years. Hundreds of books were written on the subject between 1766 and 1925, but it's almost entirely forgotten today. Mm. Mesmerism is still practiced as a form of alternative mesmerism in some countries, but magnetic practices are not recognized as part of medical science. So again, is this tying into the same stuff that we always talk about? Like with moving the the blocks of the pyramids uh you know the the druids you know carrying the stone from a mountain 200 miles to create stonehenge yeah you know it's like it's all these sort of like forgotten things you know and and again it ties into sort of the like mud flood or tartaria and all that kind of stuff but i don't know I i thought that was really interesting that the belief is that there's like some sort of like magnetic sort of uh, like aura maybe that we all have, you know, us animals and (laughs) vegetables apparently. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe after death, like, I don't know, maybe it's some sort of um, like, you know, iron or metals, like minerals, like within, like left in the body. Maybe that's like. Well, here's what's interesting about that. First, I, I like that. I can't like, I've never heard of that either. Mm-hmm. What an interesting concept. Yeah. Uh, animal magnetism. Yeah. Like, I've, I mean, never heard of it. The one yeah, thing same. I will say, though, that's interesting about, let's say, the Chase Vault versus the one uh, in France mm-hmm. is, or in Ireland even with the, the oak wood caskets and stuff, these were lead. And lead, and, and that's an interesting point, would be maybe because they're aware of this magnetism or what is it called? Animal magnetism. Maybe that's why they chose to put them in lead because lead lead isn't magnetic and it can like essentially block those forces. Hmm. But but it, this kind of gets me to a, an interesting point about like burial practices in general because one of the explanations that people have about this is more of like um, kind of a magical nature, meaning that you know some beliefs were that like some magicians and or, and or sorcerers. And when I say magicians, I don't mean the guy that comes to the four-year-old's birthday party. I'm talking about people that practice magic know. with magic with a K. Sure. Yes. And so people thought that, okay, these guys know some unknown dark entities that may be behind these sort of quote-unquote escaping um, graves because oftentimes too, bodies have been known to disappear. And so mm. some of the customs 
surrounding that to keep that from happening, one of them is that uh, there's a custom that people will like pour the sap of a quote magic tree or border the grave with this uh, with seashells to prevent it from escaping. Mm-hmm. On the islands of Tonga, for example, the dead are buried only in pairs. The soul of one of them will hold the other if it suddenly wants to change its place. They like you and I, like twin twin flames or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm just like, come on, man, just let me go. So that that's super interesting. I think recently in the news, they they found what they called to be like, you know, someone they believed at the time when they were buried may have been believed to be a vampire because they were buried in a way that this uh, metal sickle was around their, either their, their, I think right at their neck. So in other words, if they tried to lift up or something, then it would uh, behead them. Hmm. And that was wow. that. That was recent. I think that was a few weeks ago. They they found these remains, and so mm-hmm. there's a bunch of those type of things that that people do. One of them again is this. Uh, I think I saw it in a um, oh god in a Danish thing that they talked about in this same folklore magazine from 1907 called the Death Door, and essentially it is a way for them. That's part of the reason why they seal it from the outside oh, <clears throat> is right. because there is this belief that you know it it, it wasn't necessarily always to protect people from being robbed if they were buried with their possession it, it, uh, possessions. It was really, in other words, it wasn't a means to keep things from coming in. It was as a means to keep things from going out, which is super mm. interesting to me. And so, so I don't know, there's something so creepy about that. That Absolutely. like, that they went so far to create this like death door or corpse door that, it, I mean, that's like a whole extra batch of steps to, to, make a door on the coffin that mm-hmm. nothing can, like it can't get out. Like that's, that's really fascinating. It's, it's super strange. Now, one of the sort of first questions that people have in critiques and stuff, mm-hmm. or not critiques, but just like being somewhat skeptical about any of these cases, they want to know, hey man, was there an earthquake? Look, Barbados, it's near the coast. It's not near the coast. It's an island mm-hmm. that's big enough to, like, if, did they get hit by an intense hurricane? Maybe maybe there was some sort of earth movement that would, you know, cause these things. Was there an earthquake that would cause these lead coffins to be moved all around and all this kind of stuff? I mean, Was do there you... water that, like, filled up that area and filled it up to the point that, like, you know, had those coffins float around and then the water mm-hmm. receded? And, you know, maybe there's some sort of underground thing. Here's yeah, what they said. The... The chalk, though, remember? No, no, it wasn't chalk. It was sand. Or sand, yeah, yeah. right. Sand in, in the chase vault and then wood ash in the ash. one in yeah, um, uh, the, the French one. Yeah. yeah. So in all of these cases, all of them, there was absolutely zero sign of water in the crypts the, to the point of, well, maybe there was some sort of, you know, earthquake or something that displaced them. Mm-hmm. Well, then why were the coffins in neighboring crypts Un, untouched and, and left the same. Yeah, right. I mean, the only thing I can think of is like, wh- were they, I mean, like I said, I mean, we can already gather that they're somewhat financially, you know, fairly wealthy. But like, I don't know, I, I guess, I guess, I guess if we are looking at it as possible, we're still kind of looking at it as like a grave robber thing, which I, I'm not leaning on the side of yeah. just because but nothing like, is taken. Yeah. It's like but the that would that would 
not necessarily like convince me, but that would sort of lean a little more into a grave robber thing if it was the only one that was being moved because it was like a wealthier, sure, you know, family or whatever. Right. And it's in, I'm glad that you brought a grave robber because that was kind of next on what I wanted to kind of not dispel, but just kind of address. So let's talk mm-hmm. about could this have been done by human hands? Sure. But we're talking about, again, as a reminder, we're talking about at the very least the smallest coffin weighed you know, between 200 and 300 pounds. The largest ones at least double that. We'll just call it an even you know, 800 to 1,000 pounds. That's not going to be, look, I'm a strong guy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Tyler. I'm stronger. I probably wouldn't invite him if I was going to move some lead coffins. But I'm just saying. How dare you. <laughs> the point is, like, you're going to have a crew, right? Yeah. To be able right. to move around on that stuff. Not to mention, how you know, the sound. Now, this is back in the 1800s. People didn't live very far from where they worked. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, the guy who was the caretaker of the cemetery and the graves and all that probably had a house on the property. Yeah, or, I mean, not even that, but then you also probably have either the the priest living in the church, which mm-hmm. a lot of times... And they did, maybe nuns and... Or and nuns and whoever else. Yeah. And, or a parish, which, oddly enough, like anytime you see like parishes, you know, where the priest would stay and stuff, I think that was sort of a fairly newer type thing. Mm-hmm. They would be usually always right beside the graveyard so that they could keep an eye on, you know, grave robbers and stuff. Mm -hmm. So those things, you know, again, it's not impossible, Mm -hmm. but the plausibility of anything like that happening, it it just starts to get, the window for that starts to get smaller and smaller and smaller. Yeah. Not to mention the fact that in all these cases also, they were sealed from the outside with masonry work. And on top of that, an official seal placed so that it's that old sort of like, um, oh, man, I don't know if it was a movie or what. My, my parents never did this, but I, I remember hearing like, oh, that's what it was. <laughs> if you would go on like high school sports sort of um, trips, right, mm-hmm. that, that required you or band or whatever you're in, to required, that required you to stay in like in a hotel. There was like adult chaperones, other people's parents. Well, what they would do is they would tape the outside of the door right? so that they could tell, like once it was like lights out, they could tell if you had left because essentially that seal had been mm-hmm. broken and it was only their color to, in other words, you'd not, you would not be able to kind of like fake it, mm-hmm. you know? So they essentially did the same thing here. And in every single one of those cases, the masonry work was untouched. The seals yeah. weren't touched. And when they had to go in and break the masonry up just to get in there, it took like a ton of time, a ton of work and effort from more than one person. So again, the plausibility, that window gets smaller and smaller and smaller. So what is it? Is it a poltergeist? Is it, you know, uh, like a, a spirit that is, for whatever reason, um, not able to rest you know? Yeah, it's like that rest, restless spirit kind of mm-hmm. idea. The interesting thing too here is that both of the the France and the the Chase Vault all had someone, one person that was buried along with the rest that had committed suicide. Yeah, so that's this interesting. interesting idea about someone that 
you know, and back then, if someone committed suicide, typically they weren't allowed to have like a proper funeral or whatever. Right. Well, and they also believed that they wouldn't, they basically would, would stay here wondering, mm. you know, their spirit would stay. Uh, they were, they weren't permitted like into heaven, you know, it gets a little dark, but that, that is interesting that like, that's the, the sort of the common denominator. Mm. It's like, are they fighting? Do they not like each other down there? Man. Now I do have a question. Did you, did you find anything? I, I didn't see anything when I looked through this, but did you see anything with like anything odd about like the bodies themselves per se? No, no, I didn't see anything like that. It's um, just the coffins just sort of yep, strewn about. Now That's here's so something weird. else before we get into other ways that uh, of possibilities that are, I guess, less fantastic. Um, it it, it kind of goes without saying that if we're talking about poltergeists and we've talked about mummies, Mm-hmm. There aren't any lycanthropes here, but we're going to, I'm going to have to bring up vampires. vampires. I knew it. Yeah. All right. Listen to this though, man. I've never, and maybe you have, but I've never heard of this sort of legend being sort of like an origin story for vampires. Is it the brick? No, listen to this. A man was buried. His ghost appeared to his loved ones asking for food then began to squeeze them in his arms and caused them to die one after the other. Mm. Family complained to local magistrates in the church. I don't know how they were all dead, according to the story. After a long ordeal, when people were already driven to despair, the graves of the returning buried relatives were exhumed, where they were found to be alive. They were executed, after which they no longer appeared. In some regions of the Balkans, they were not called anything at all except, quote, ghosts. Later it turned out that in Turkey, they were called vampires. Mm. From there, the word migrated into the language of Europe. And that, my friends, is where the con- contagion belief came from. Mm-hmm. That's Real quick, sorry, that's really cool, though. That And, and this was where you said Bram Stoker visited the uh, same the- mission... The uh, French church in, in Dublin. No, 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 in Ireland. Oh, in Ireland. That's right. With the God, mummies so many stuff. different ones. I know. That's cool, though. Yeah. I mean, because he's sort of the... I think there were some before, like you're saying, but I guess he was sort of the father of, like, the the idea of, like, Dracula and, yeah. and like, the quintessential sort of vampire that yeah. we think of. So it kind of comes into this idea that perhaps, and this kind of begins to make its way into the less sort of fantastical sort of idea is that maybe these people, again, even as I said, it's kind of laughable, but maybe all of them were still alive. Okay. Mm-hmm. So something similar to the cases that we talked about is described by this guy named Augustin Calment in his famous treatise on vampire mm. that was written in 1749. He writes the disturbances and crypts in the past have been associated with other far more frightening anomalies and facts. Okay. He writes, the German author Mikkel Rauft has composed a work entitled De Mastication Mortorium in Tumulus, which mm. translates to be Dead Men Who Munch in Their Grave. Wow. He considers it a proven and authentic fact that some of the dead in the graves devour linen, clothing, anything that comes up, and even their own bodies. He notes that in some regions of Germany, 
In order to prevent the dead from munching, they put a large lump of earth in the coffin under their chin. In other regions, they put small pieces of silver or stone in their mouth. There are mm. places where they simply squeeze their... Th- oh, God. I'm not putting that in there. <laughs> to this might be added the case of Count Henry de Salm, who was thought to be dead, but was buried perfectly alive. At night, loud cries were heard in the church of Hout Say Abbey, where he was buried. And when the grave was opened the next day, he was found upside down and lying face down, though he had been buried on his back, face up. Oh, you mean like in the coffin? Yeah, in the coffin. So completely like, kind of going back to that question that you had earlier. Some years ago at Bar-le-Duc, when a man was buried in the cemetery, a noise was heard from his grave. The next day when the grave was opened, it was found that he had eaten the tissues of his own hands. Witnesses confirm this. The man had drunk too much vodka and was buried, presumed dead. Ralph tells of a gypsy woman who was, in 1345, ate half her shroud in her grave. In Luther's time, there were cases of dead men eating their own entrails. Another dead man in Moravia ate the clothes of a woman buried near him. What? I've never heard of any of this stuff. I mean... Uh, now there is, and this is like one of my biggest fears. There is that that sort of old trope of like people mm-hmm. being buried alive. Yeah, Edgar Allan, very Edgar Allan Poe. Right, of. right, yeah, and and you know there is some like, um, I mean, which would be tied. You know, once you kind of get like like Barbados and like like Haiti, there's mm-hmm. a lot of that like sort of like hoodoo, magic. voodoo, mm-hmm. black magic kind of stuff, and there's a lot of that like. You know, there's like certain uh, mixtures that they can do. I think we talked about this with uh, when we Rougarou. went in. Yeah, I think the Rougarou one, uh, where basically it makes you appear that you're dead. Like it slows your heart so slow that it can't mm. be recognized. And like, uh, well, also, and they, dude, I mean, they're, they're medical instruments back then. Oh, you know, yeah. like, I don't think they had a good stethoscope. You know what I mean? Right. So yeah. this goes perfectly into the possibility that perhaps these people were in some sort of coma. You know, I mean, mm-hmm, theoretically right. speaking, some of these like, quote, self-moving coffins could maybe be explained that way, right? The person came back to life, started freaking out, trying to get out of the coffin in the sealed crypt. crypt. But here's the thing though, man. And then they died of exhaustion and panic and, and heck, um, not having any food. I mean, think about it. You're trapped in there and you're not whatever. Which is kind of a, I mean, that concept, dude, is, is it is terrifying being buried alive. This is terrifying. Oh, yeah. But, but again, dude, it's like, okay, but then how come any of those events, for example, in Barbados or, or in France and stuff, the bodies weren't out? There wasn't like a body like scratching at the door. Right. You know? Yeah, the, the entrance, uh, well, in all of these, the entrances haven't been touched at all. I mean, these are completely... Uh, supposedly sealed, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that, that uh, and this is what I was kind of going to get into before, uh, that I thought was weird is, and we'll kind of do like a rough outline. The, the Chase family, you know, they, they purchased the vault. They buried their infant child, Marianne Maria. There was this other lady that was living in there, uh, Thomasina Goddard. They were like, well, it'll be fine. We'll just bury them all together. So then they buried the little, the infant four years after they buried the baby. They would bury another child, which this was 
kind of disturbing to me. Uh, their daughter Dorcas, which is probably the biggest tragedy, is naming your kid Dorcas. Um, well, I mean, <laughs> yeah, but second but it, to like having them die. But well, right, right, right. Uh, yeah, and so listen to this: the circumstances surrounding her death were more than slightly unusual. The young girl starved herself to death, apparently as an act of rebellion against her father, who was supposedly abusing her. The girl's body was buried beside her infant sisters. Uh, you know, they were all in lead caskets. And then a month after they married Dorcas, which, by the way, like, when I read all that, I was like, well, maybe, you know, it sounds like this... It sounds like Thomas Chase doesn't sound like the greatest dude and. I don't know. It just seemed a little shady. Like, you have a, a daughter who's, like, as an act of rebellion, is, like, starving herself to death. That sounds a little more like hard abuse, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so I was thinking, well, maybe maybe some of this has to do with, like, he's just this weirdo, like, and maybe it's him getting in there. But then we would find out a month after that, a month after he buried Dorcas, he himself would strangely die. And it was supposedly said that uh, it was due to suicide. It said the family prepared Thomas's body and opened the chase vault, but what they claimed to find inside was shocking. Like you said, previously uh, there had been three coffins lined neatly in a row. The tomb was totally scattered. You know, it says the family was shocked. They, I think they originally thought that it was grave robbers. So at this point, they're seeing that it's been, stuff's been moved around twice so far. And every single time, like you said before, they're, they like arrange them neatly every time, you know? And so, yeah, and then it says here, the entrance is completely sealed. The next death of the family was Charles Brewster Ames, who was 11 years old. Uh, his body was prepared for burial and the chase vault was opened. All four coffins, including Thomas's tremendously heavy one, were displaced uh, as if they had been tossed like toys, and yet the entrance had not been tampered with. Mm-hmm. There's, there were also like secondary stories of hearing, like people would claim to hear shrieks from within the tomb, uh, or of horses being spooked while passing it and sort of bolting off. The other thing that I thought was interesting is that the governor of Barbados would like become really interested in the case, and you know he ordered this this big inspection. Uh, inside and out and he you know after being it says after being satisfied that it was secured you know it had like you had said it had the fine dust sprinkled on the door uh and with his own signet ring stamped Mm -hmm. into the seal of the door that's what i'm saying you can't duplicate that yeah you can't and and that's the thing it's like we would you would have these signet rings that like only royalty would have Mm -hmm. you know it's i mean it's like game of thrones they melt the wax and then And so it says eight months later, he would return externally. Everything was in order and the seal was completely intact. Curiosity called for the door to be opened, at which point onlookers saw to their horror that the coffins once again had been thrown about inside the chamber. This time the movement seemed to be so violent and that Marianne's coffin was thrown so forcefully into a wall that the corner of her casket had broken off. Hmm. I mean, and it just, and it keeps going. It keeps going. Yeah, man. Yeah. Not to take it back to vampires. I mean, it does feel very physical. But, dude, listen to this, man. Again, like, I, a lot of this stuff, and we we just talked about this actually either yesterday or the day before, maybe even today. I don't remember. They're all running together. But essentially, talking about how we need to do a straight-up vampire episode. Oh, Because it's just so um, interesting. But, But listen to this, dude. 
there's this guy named Gerard van Swieten. He was the mm-hmm. chief court physician of this Austro-Hungarian, um, whatever, hospital, I don't know, medical place. And he wrote this thing called The Medical Report on Vampires. Listen to this. It says, Some months ago, I read a little English treatise printed in London in 1751, which reports a fact real and authentically proved. In February 1750, the tomb of an ancient family in the county of Devonshire, England, was opened. Among the many remains and rotten coffins, an intact wooden box was found. Out of curiosity, it was opened. There they found the body of a perfectly whole man. The tissues still retained their natural density. The joints of the shoulders, elbows, and fingers were perfectly flexible. When a finger was pressed on the skin of the face, it revealed its pliability but returned to its original state as soon as pressure was ceased. The same was experimented on the whole entire body. The beard was black, four inches long. The corpse did not emit an odor of decomposition. No damage was found on it, and the church register testified that no person was buried in this crypt after 1669. So here is an English vampire who lay peacefully in his grave for 80 years without disturbing anyone. There's no direct indication here, of course, of any kind of, like, chaos in the crypt. Things weren't strewn about. It just essentially says that this, quote, vampire's coffin was completely intact in comparison to the others that were damaged. Hmm. It goes on to say that, like, in the vast majority of cases involving exhumations of vampire, what they considered to be vampire graves, only the coffins buried in the ground is mentioned and very rarely do crypts appear which is interesting to me because you know when I think of a vampire I think of it like having a coffin in a crypt somewhere in some castle Mm -hmm. you know in Romania or whatever but this part is really kind of what sort of brings it all together here and I had no idea about this did you know that that there's this connection between vampires and poltergeist activity Mm. It's actually accompanied by poltergeist activity. For example, the Slavic view of vampires sees them as non-corporeal beings having more in common with poltergeists than with Dracula, for example. First, the victims hear a knock at the window and doors. Objects moving by themselves in the house of the deceased, especially items like clothes, which often look as if someone invisible put them on and went about their day. Only after this poltergeist activity does the ghost of the comatose vampire themselves pay a visit to the victims. So that's just interesting, man. That lore is a little different than what we're used to in, in terms of pop culture and and all that stuff. Yeah. Well, and I, I, th- I think e- even just the term uh, a poltergeist itself just means like noisy ghosts. So, I mean, to me, that kind of goes along perfectly with with whatever is happening, you know. Mm-hmm. Going back to that book, the way that he, the way that A. Lang, now he doesn't say that he is Andrew Lang, so we don't know for sure just yet as, as of this moment, but mm-hmm. he just basically says that it is not possible for me to find the cause of the disturbances. But I ask, are the other narratives instances of mythically localizing in various places a known set of facts or if not what 
are they? Incredible. Man, that is incredible. And then the next article is the principles of fasting. So, I mean, you've got quite a, you've got quite a bit here. <laughs> I mean, what do you think, if you kind of had to... I don't, there's so many I questions know. in my head. I, I, like, would a decomposing body produce enough sort of gases and stuff to uh, create some sort of chemical reaction that would cause maybe the lid of one right. of these coffins to like bump and then that in turn you know, tilted one, which made the whole thing tumble over. That happening once, I think, is, is like, it's easy for my mind to kind of wrap around that. The fact that it occurred many times and every time that they opened that thing until those bodies were buried in the earth. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I don't know, man. I... But, e- but even that happening, uh, I just sounded like Porky Pig there. But, e- but e- even with that happening, I mean... It still doesn't quite satisfy, like, even if you're a hard skeptic. Because, I mean, like we said, the smallest one, and we're talking like an infant, you know, is 280 pounds or 240 pounds or whatever. And so these are, like, very, very heavy. So, like, say something crazy happened, blows the lid off. I don't know. I I don't see – well, and then then even what's even a little more, like, unbelievable is that, like – I guess the in the the diagram that you show, uh, the coffins are like on top of mm-hmm. each other. So it's like, how does that happen? So I don't know. And also, how does you know what I mean? get in there to make it happen and then cover their tracks so well? Like, I'm not saying it's impossible. Yeah, you know, and we're certainly not going to find the solution here today. But no matter what, mm-hmm. this is a creepy scenario because oftentimes I mm-hmm. I imagine myself. As like the, man, I got to make some extra money, you know. Sure, I'll take that job. And then I'm hauling this heavy freaking coffin into this scary place only to find right. the stuff's moved around. Now, I imagine myself as the first person that discovered that and be like, oh, man, let me just get everything nice. And I want them to think I did a good job. And then less than a year later, someone mm-hmm. else dies. And you're like, come on in, Mr. Smith. Let me show you. the." And then everything's all over the place. And you're like, uh, you know. Yeah, really. I mean, it's just, it's a, uh, it's a scary thing. But again, I think it is a perfect way for us to kick off this spooky season. I'm talking about strange poltergeist activity that, you know, doesn't just happen in the house. This strange mystery of these wandering graves and moving coffins. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's terrifying. Yeah, that's crazy. This was, this was such a good one because it's just, it's still... I mean, I don't know. I, I, I don't have, um, I don't know. I don't really have a, like a conclusion to land on. I mean, I do, uh, I, I'm extremely interested in the animal magnetism sort of take because I do feel like it, you know, we, we think of like ghosts and spirits and it's this very sort of like uh, ethereal kind of like wispy vapor-like sort of vibe but this to me feels very like physical and very, you know, from what we do know of like spirits or ghosts or whatever, which, you know, you, to take with a grain of salt, but that, you know, if there is sort of physical, you know, call it poltergeist phenomenon associated with these events, it's like, it's pretty small, you know, it's like you don't really see a lot of times where like a, like a, bookshelf is knocked over mm-hmm. or a chair is thrown across the room. Like, like yeah, that's in, like, movies and stuff. But, 
you know, in real life, it's it's more stuff with like you know, like a, a picture falling mm. off the wall, a coffee or mug falling into a door. Mm. Yeah, yeah, door closing, a cabinet door opening. But again, man, like the smallest casket or coffin being you know two hundred and forty mm-hmm. something pounds, I just don't see. But again, like this, it, it's hard to to have any kind of belief in that too because it's like you know the literal the mayor's like you know signet seal and like the dust and the sand and the chalk and like none of that stuff is mm-hmm. is disturbed so yeah. it's bizarre man i think yeah. it was a good one though i think it was a nice little kickoff and uh i like i've said before i typically kind of i used to be really really heavy into like ghosts and you know cemeteries and like you know, growing up as a kid, that was like a bit, the big thing. Um, unsolved mm-hmm. mysteries, you know, of course. But I feel like, you know, as an adult, the whole sort of ghost concept has sort of, I don't know, kind of dissolved into other mm-hmm. beliefs, mm-hmm. you know, for I think for both of us. And so it was kind of nice to go back to like sort of yeah, this classic. Of, of Halloween. Yeah, like yeah, ghost yeah. story. You know, that's it. cool. Yeah. Well, cool, dude. Well, if you guys would like to uh, continue this talk, join us over on Instagram. Feel free to shoot any comments, anything like that. If you have something you want to tell us, shoot us a DM. If you have a story you would like to write or voice memo, shoot it over to thatwouldberadpod at gmail.com. But even better than all those things is the website, which is thatwouldberadpodcast.com. And there you can leave your voice memo, you can listen to episodes, you can be linked to, you know, different podcatchers, you can leave reviews. Definitely feel free to leave a five-star review. It only helps us, you know, helps the show just get in front of people. Three ways that you can support our show. Number one. <laughs> yeah, it's all in the yeah, link tree. But Go number ahead. one, if you're not getting your, your fix with us, and one week isn't enough. Mm-hmm. Guys, we have a Patreon now. Multiple tiers with all kinds of different benefits. You can check out what those are at patreon.com slash that slash 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 that would be rad. But it's a great place. We throw in bonus episodes, for example. We have a bonus episode where we dive even deeper into some of the stuff that we talked about in last week's episode. So you can become a member there, and that is a huge way you can support us. Or you can buy us a coffee uh, on our <laughs> in our link train. And, <laughs> of course, visit our merchandise shop, which will be updated soon. We promise. I know we've said that a couple weeks mm-hmm. in a row here, but we will be yep. updating that um, so that you have some cold weather gear to represent. Mm-hmm. Well, dude, uh, I think episode one of our October Spooktacular is a wrap. I love the suggestion thanks again to mm-hmm. jesse thank you so much it was killer and uh i feel like i learned a lot today so mm-hmm. kind of a bonus you got anything else that's it cool bro we love you we appreciate you and as always be rad that's the way it
clouds in a time where I just needed some sunshine. You were already dead before you became a ghost. You always said our future would be a parade of flowers, but now all that's left is a single rose. That's the way it goes.